On today's More Than a Test, we have Dr. Susan Enfield joining us. Dr. Susan Enfield holds her doctorate from Harvard, has master's degrees from Stanford and Harvard, has a bachelor's degree from Berkeley, but more importantly, she, she has been the Washington State Superintendent of the Year in 2022, the National Superintendent of the Year in 2018. She has led schools and districts across the country. And when I asked her, you know, you were in a great job, you had a great place to be, why would you move on? She said, I, I knew I needed to get my energy back and I needed to reinvigorate. And so get excited for a really invigorating conversation about schools across the country, about Washoe in Nevada and about the great things that she's doing for students. Dr. Susan Enfield, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Laura. You are the superintendent of Washoe County. Tell us about Washoe County. So the Washoe County School District is, our central office is in Reno, Nevada, but we, the county is 6,600, the district is 6,600 square miles. So we serve students living in Reno and Sparks, but we also have schools in Incline Village, which is near Lake Tahoe. And we have a modern day one room schoolhouse in Gerlach, Nevada, which is where Burning Man takes place. So we will be closing that school for a week during Burning Man, which we do every year. So what I love about the Washoe County School District is it's just it's got so much diversity um, in the, the types of schools we have. And when people say, are you rural, urban, suburban? I'm like, we're all of it. We're urban, <laughs> rural and suburban. Um, we're about 60,000 students uh, right now. And just last year, Spanish just surpassed English as our top language. Wow, that's amazing. Now, it's interesting you say the 6,600 the 6, square miles because I was reading an article about you today and, it's, and it was the five reasons Susan Enfield is different. I don't know if you've seen this, but um, one of the reasons was it said you're everywhere. You're at basketball games. And this is a huge district. How, how do you make it feel like you are everywhere? How much are you going to? Are you really at all these different events that this article mentioned? Well, I don't know. I think like most superintendents or probably leaders in general, I feel like I'm never doing enough. Um, and so I, I think one of the commitments that I made last year was that I would visit every school. We have 103 schools. I should have mentioned that. And so uh, last year I did uh, get to every school at least once. Um, I think it's just really, really important to be in every school to get a sense of what that school community is like, but also for that school community to see me, um, especially a school like Gerlach, right, which is 21 students, you know, K through 12 um, in a very, very rural, isolated part of our state. It's important that they understand that they are a part of our district community. And so um, I, that's probably why people think I'm out and about a lot. But I will also say this. Yes, our district is, very, is vast in terms of square mileage, but there is still like a small town feel. People, I mean, I joke that there are like zero degrees of separation between people in this district. Like everybody knows everybody. So it doesn't feel as big as it really is. Um, but I also, and this is where I think social media can be a real plus, I think social media can make it seem to people like you're everywhere, right? So I, I try to be really good about sharing what's happening in the district through social media. Well, it's interesting you say that because um, like I told you earlier, I've seen you all over social media. I've watched the videos. I've seen your Twitter and it, and it is. It feels like you have, you're sharing your whole life, your whole job with people. And I've heard the, the opposite is also true, that yes, you can share, but that means you also can be the brunt of whatever mm -hmm. anyone else wants to respond on social media and that a oh, lot yeah. of superintendents think it's hard to be on social media. So tell me how you balance that. How do you manage that? Well, you know, you have to have 
you know, your executive function capabilities need to be high, especially when it comes to self-regulation. But if kindergartners can learn it, so can we. So um, I have just made it a practice and disciplined myself that um, I don't get into a back and forth on social media. If somebody, if somebody just raises a criticism, I just let it go. But if somebody raises an issue, right? Like, you know, there was no, this didn't happen by the way, but like there was no water at my kid's school today, like something like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get into it and back and forth, but I'm going to have somebody on my team reach out to that individual quickly. So I think it's just not allowing yourself to get into a back and forth and you just can't, you can't take it personally. You know, it's not fun to be attacked. And it is true. When you put yourself out on social media, you do, you know, make yourself somewhat of a target. Um, but I think the other thing that I will say is I only use social media for professional purposes. I, my husband and I are probably the only, the two, probably the only two people on the planet who've never been on Facebook. Um, so wow. I don't have a personal Facebook account. I don't use my, my, in my Instagram threads, you know, Twitter for anything other than really district work. And so maybe for me, that helps keep it a little more, more manageable and less personal. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, let me ask you another question about your district. So you talked about this one-room schoolhouse and you talked about Reno. How is your leadership and management and messaging for those two different communities, how, how is it different? I don't know that it is. You know, we just, we're, we're in the midst of finalizing our strategic plan. And um, at the heart of that plan is what we're calling our Washoe County School District Promise which is really uh, an evolution of our Highline promise that I developed when I started in Highline in 2012, which is to know every student by name, strength, and need. So they graduate prepared for the future they choose. And here in the Washoe County School, School District, we deliver on that promise in partnership with our families and community. That promise is what grounds everything we do. And that applies to, you know, Worcester High School that is in the urban downtown core of Reno, just as it applies to um, Incline High School that is up in Incline Village or Gerlach or, you know, Spanish Springs High School out in Sparks. So I think as a leader, when you're leading a large system, it's important to strengthen the connective tissue between your schools. And I think you do that through, you know, really clear language um, and making sure that the language you're using, you're also living um, yeah. in, in your actions in real life. Okay. Let me ask you two questions. So this is your second year at Washoe or third? It is. Okay. So what's the biggest lesson you learned last year? Oh, the biggest lesson I learned last year. Um, I think coming into a, a, even though I was a seasoned superintendent, I was brand new to this state and this community. And so I think just the remembering how important it is to ask questions and that it's, oh, not only is it okay not to know something, it, it actually is normal, right? I shouldn't know everything and, and heaven knows I shouldn't pretend to know everything. So, you know, being reminded that asking questions and really being a learner and a listener when you come into a new community, I think is really, really important. Um, and I think I was reminded too, and I learned this lesson in Highline, um, when you, when you are new to a system and you come in and you begin to uh, introduce and implement change, no matter how respectfully, kindly, professionally you do that, it still feels like an indictment to the people who were here before. And I've really tried to keep that at the forefront of my, uh, when I, 
when I talk with people about why we're making a change, you know, I, I really try to frame it as it's not that you were doing anything wrong before you were doing the best that you knew how to do in the conditions and context within which you were working at that time. We're in a different space now. And so we're going to do things differently. And it's not an indictment on anyone who came before or any work that came before. But I think as a leader, you have to be mindful that that's how some people are internalizing it. And I think naming it for folks is really, really important. Yeah, I think that's really valuable. I love the way that you said that you had to learn it at Highline and then you learn it again. I feel like my entire life is relearning all of my leadership lessons and all of my human lessons. So I I appreciate you owning that and saying it. Um, All right. What's the biggest different? What's the biggest change you're going to make from year one to year two? Um, this will terrify my colleagues and teammates. Uh, we're going to pick up the pace. Uh, I was just having this conversation with a colleague, you know, year one, isn't that hard. It's a lot, but it's not hard because you're really just in fact finding and relationship building mode. But year two, if you've done a good job in that fact finding, (laughs) um, and, and learning mode, you know, the magnitude of, of challenges that you're facing and it's time to get to work. And so I think we're going to pick up the pace in making really thoughtful but necessary changes to the system. Can you give us a hint? Tell us one of the thoughtful and necessary changes coming. Yeah. You know, um, as I've said to people, we have really good people here in the Washoe County School District, but we don't have a really good systems, right? So what my challenge is, how do we start building systems that are as good as our people? And so the district over the years, and probably COVID exacerbated this, has become very decentralized, right? There's just not a lot of, there aren't good systems in place to ensure predictability and reliability across all of our schools. And that's going to be what drives a lot of what we're doing this year. Um, So for example, I... I have, I've charged my team with making sure that we have a centrally driven system for our schools to distribute devices to students who need to take one home. Because when I arrived last year, someone had made the decision that we weren't going to send devices home anymore. I'm like, well, right. what, what, why? And so my feeling is if a child needs to take a device, like we're not going to send devices home with every kid, but if a kid needs a device to keep up with their schoolwork, they're going to get it. Um, and so that's something that with that I'm challenging our team here to figure out how they support the schools in doing that. I don't think that that, that given how large and decentralized our system is, I cannot leave it to chance that, that every child in every one of our schools will get that access unless we centralize it somehow. And I'm sure that people before you, right? Like when you're looking at such a large space and so much diversity, it's easy to kind of be like, there's no way to do this centrally, right? Like just wash your hands of it. And so I think that that says a lot for you that you want to take that on because I'm sure there's lots of challenges. You mentioned your colleagues and I want to ask you one more question about Washoe and then I really want to talk about you. Um, Do you know all of your colleagues by name, strength and need? (laughs) Um, Well, I've got, you know, roughly 7,000 colleagues in this district. So no. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I will, I will share with you this, the same thing that I share with our staff in schools. When I say to know every child by name, strength, and need, I don't expect every adult in that building to know every child by name, strength, and need. There are a lot of adults in our schools. So how are you strategically making sure? And I'll give you a great example. I was out at Silver Lake Elementary School last week and Courtney Sego, the principal, um, the, and in her dean were um, 
they had put photos of every fifth grader up on the wall and then staff signed their name next to every child that they had a relationship with. And then they stepped back and there were two photos that had no signatures. So now they knew exactly that they had to, by design, uh, you know, make sure that, that there were adults in that sk- school building relationships with those two students. That's the kind of thing we need to do. So when it comes to my staff, I really try hard to, obviously, I know my direct reports and I know our leadership team folks. Um, and and I'm, I'm getting better at making sure I know every principal as well. But we've had some principal turnover this year, so I have some new ones. But I really, really do think it's important that I model that so that my direct reports are doing it with their teams. Right. And they're doing it with their others. So it's, it's a, it's a cascading effect. It doesn't fall on anyone. Yeah. And I really love that story. That's so actionable for everyone. And my heart just like dropped for those two kids, but then, you know, someone went and got them, right? Like no, no teacher is going to leave those two kids. Like what a great exercise. And by the way, it could be that, that those two kids arrived the day before, you know what I mean? Or, or it could be that, you know, they're, they're, there's some of our sadly invisible kiddos. And one of the things that I say to our team and why I push so hard and why I go faster than the average bear is we can't, we can't have any invisible children in our schools. And, and at the end of the day, that is what I'm pushing us to figure out. How do we not have any invisible children in our schools? Um, it reminds me of something that I hear all the time at Amira. So our product, the way it works is teacher, kids read out loud to Amira and then they get tutoring, right? Um, and what I heard, what I hear from teachers all the time is I have a class of 30 or 36 or 32. And before Amira, there were kids who I think didn't talk all day and I didn't even notice, right? We're just so busy. We have so much to get in and not for bad intentions. They're just quiet kids. And she, and they say like, they just, we need to have more opportunities for kids to have their voices heard and not be invisible. I think it's, I think it's really well put. I agree a hundred percent. It's really fun listening to you talk about how like you need to pick up the pace because, before this job, you were at a school district for 10 years. And I think they, at least based on the articles I read, would have kept you forever if they could have. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. <laughs> well, whoever's publishing the articles, they love you and I love you. So we're going we're gonna to go with my narrative on this. Thank you. Um, so how did you decide to, to, to make a change? And how did you decide that you wanted to do this? Because I'm sure it is like a real gas pedal to get to go to a brand new district in a brand new state. Yeah. So, um, I loved Highline and, and you're right. There was no reason to leave. Like nothing was wrong. I had a great board. I had a dream team. Um, you know, we had great systems in place and, you know, loved the community. Um, but you know, I think it's really important for leaders to have the self-awareness and the humility to know when it's time to go. Um, not just for you, but for your organization. And I, I was starting to get stale. And, um, I knew that I was reaching the, and, and actually I probably started feeling it just before the pandemic. I was like, you know, eight years in, it might be time. Um, and not just for me to have a fresh professional challenge, but for Highline to have a leader with fresh eyes. Like I had taken it as far as I could take it and it was time for the next leader. And then the pandemic hit. And obviously there was no way I was going to leave my district and my community in the midst of that. Right. I had to see that through, but, um, but I just knew it was time. I knew that, that, you know, I could have, I could have coasted. You're right. Yeah. I could have stayed and coasted for another two to three years, but that wouldn't have been, that would have been a disservice to highlight. Okay. I'm going to ask you a somewhat uncomfortable question, but mm-hmm. when you know you're getting stale, what does that look like? Hmm. I think, I think for me, 
it, 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 it felt like I could almost phone it in. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have to be like, I have to be hands-on 24 seven all the time right now. Right. Because I'm, I'm, trying to wrap my arms around the system. But we had gotten it to a place and my team was so high functioning that I was like, you know, I don't don't know that they need me as much anymore. And and I just I don't know, it's a really I honestly, it's a good question that I don't know that I have a good answer for. I just knew. I just knew it was time. And and I have to say, uh and I've shared this with other superintendent colleagues who have either left their district or or thinking about leaving their district. It's actually really invigorating to to go somewhere new. I mean, I have loved the ch- the, the challenge and the opportunity of moving to a new state um, and having to acclimate to a different climate, both uh, you know weather wise and politics wise. Um, so it, it's it's really reinvigorated me as a leader and a learner, and that's been fun. That so I know really- I made the right decision to leave. Yeah, if it feels fun, yeah, that definitely it. This isn't the first hard decision that you've made, though. I read an article about how you were in Seattle, and everyone thought you were going to be the superintendent in Seattle, and then you and then you didn't. You you went to Highline. Tell me about that moment and and what you were feeling then. Yeah, so I was the chief academic officer in Seattle, and then um, we had unfortunately a criminal in the system who had misspent some dollars, and um, although the then superintendent had nothing to do with it. Uh, the board decided to terminate her and put me in as the interim superintendent. So as you can imagine, it was a very tumultuous time for the community. It was a difficult way to enter the superintendency. Um, And things were great. Uh, You know, we were, you know, test scores were going up, graduation rates were going up. We were really rebuilding trust within the community. I had a strong team. Um, But then we had some board turnover. And a change in, in board members or trustees can shift the balance and power on the board and your relationship with the superintendent. And so that was one factor. Um, and, and I just, you know, it, I didn't feel that the conditions were in place for me to do meaningful work for children. I mean, I signed up to be a superintendent, which is probably the most political position you can be in without being elected. So I know I've signed up for for politics. I know I've signed up for a lot of this. Um, And I'll put up with a lot of it so long as I can do meaningful work for children. But if all I'm doing is battling bad adult behavior to to an extent where I'm not able to do that that real work, then I have to tap out. Um, it, It just... It is an, and, and I will also say, um, my predecessor, Dr. Maria Goodlow Johnson, may she rest in peace, was diagnosed with lung cancer um, not long, about maybe eight months or so after leaving Seattle. And, um, you know, she had never smoked a day in her life. And, you know, I know, I know the stress that that experience and that the community put her through. And I just really had to take stock and say, my health, my happiness, my marriage is not worth it. I need to go somewhere else where I can do the work, but in a way that's healthy for me. It's so interesting because I I listen to these two decisions and they're so different, right? In one situation, you're choosing like your health by by going kind of maybe a more relaxed route or whatever. And then in the second one, you're, you're amping back up, right? You're saying I I could chill out, but I'm amping back up. But in both situations, you're really trusting your gut. And what I I think is somewhat rare 
is I think a lot of people who want to be superintendents, particularly women, are afraid to trust their gut. They feel like they have to take the jobs they get. They feel like they have to like, and, and so I just wonder like, what advice would you give to those women? And what, how, like, what, yeah, what can I, you offer from this? Go ahead. Yeah, I actually am very clear whenever I talk on this subject and give counsel to colleagues is I always say, choose your professional home wisely. Because in this, in this job, in this work, this, you know, it is your professional home. You're going to spend as much time here as you are at your personal home, sometimes more. And I've seen too many instances where a leader has gone to a, a system or a community that wasn't the right fit. And it just ends in disaster. And so, you know, you have to be very deliberate. Don't go for the title. Don't go for the prestige. Don't go because it's bigger. You know, go because it's the right fit. I, I didn't necessarily feel the need to go to a bigger district after Highline. I wanted to go to a district, though, actually, that was maybe somewhat bigger so that I could, like, prove to myself that what we accomplished in Highline was scalable. But it wasn't the size and the reputation that was driving me. It was really the fit. Yeah. And, and I knew that, you know, I've said this, I feel like the Washoe County School District has good bones. You know what I mean? And yeah. um, there's a lot of good work to build on here. It's not a scorched earth scenario. Um, and, and I think you have to know yourself as a leader. I'm not, I'm not the cleaner. I'm not the person to come into a district that's in free fall. That's not me. I'm, I'm more skilled at coming into a district where there's, where there's plenty of work to do. Um, I don't want, you know, everything to be done, but, but there are, there are some good, some good foundations in place to do the work that's needed. So choose your professional home, home wisely and listen, listen to your gut. Yeah. And it's fun to talk to you about Washoe because I, I know you love Highline too, but you know, when you were talking about the one room schoolhouse, you just light up. Like it's very clear you found a really good professional home. So it's great advice that you've clearly taken. Um, you know, you mentioned the politics of being a superintendent. And one of the questions I often ask is like, what's the hardest part of the job? And I'm yet to have someone say anything different than the politics. So is it the hardest part of the job? Uh, no, the, the, the hardest part, hands down, is losing a child, is the tragedy of something happening to a child in your system. That's the hardest part of the job, uh, hands down. You know, blessedly, that's a rare occurrence. But of course, even one occurrence is too much. But um, so so that's that's what I would say, first of all. But more on the day to day basis, the challenge hands down, it's the politics, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, I think, especially in this day and age, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, it just seems that, that, um, leaders right now across our country are using their positional power and authority as a weapon to, to retaliate against, to punish, to intimidate those who disagree with them. And I find that so wrong and it, we should all find it terrifying. Um, and, you know, I have superintendent colleagues who are unfortunately bearing the brunt of that right now. So the politics are, I think, as fierce, you know, as fiercely challenging as um, they've ever been. And I think ramping up to the presidential election, they're likely it's likely going to increase. Wow. That's I, I didn't, I haven't thought about that, but I'm sure you're, you're right. And it will be even more so. So then let me ask you the more, the more fun question. What's the greatest joy of being a superintendent in Washoe County? Oh, well, that's easy. I mean, you know, uh, well, like this morning I was out at, um, 
AACT, one of our, it's actually our high school with a bunch of our signature academies. So a lot of our career technical education programs and uh, uh, Chef Noah, one of the students and Chef Hannah, two students in our culinary arts program showed me around and they had baked me my own chocolate chip cookie and it had come just fresh out of the oven and it was delicious. So I'm not saying I'm in it for the freshly baked cookies, but I am in it for the the ability to interact with students and hear what, you know, what ignites their love for learning and what what they want to do after they graduate high school. And I always ask students, what will you do after you graduate? Um, So I think being out in schools and seeing kids and, you know, when people say, do you love your job? I always say, um, most days, (laughs) but I make a clear, I make a clear distinction between the job and the work. The job is the politics it's the toxicity, it's the attacks, it's the mundane, it's it's all of the stuff. But the work of serving children, that's a gift even on the hardest days. And you endure the job for the sake of the work. And so the best part of the job is the work of serving children um, and families and just seeing that you, in conjunction with your trustees and a good team, can effect meaningful change in the lives of children that can potentially change the trajectory for them, you know, in a way that might not otherwise have happened. It's a tremendous responsibility um, and honor to be able to do that work. But that's by far the best part of the job. And you've been doing this work for a long time. You started out as a teacher and, um, and this, this know by name strength and need is something you've had for a long part of your career. As, as a teacher, you started like that. I think there was a story about how you used to say to your English students at the beginning of the year, I'll know all of your names in a week that without, without, without class charts, by the way, Correct. not a no assigned seating. Correct. Um, so when you were doing that, when you were learning those eighth graders names, did you know that this is where you were going? That you, have you always wanted to be a superintendent? Is that how you right. ended up here? Absolutely not. I guarantee you, you cannot find a child who right now is dreaming of growing up to be a school superintendent. I just, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I just feel very confident in just naming that fact. If someone wants to come prove, prove otherwise to me, let me know that your third grader was up the up at night praying to become a superintendent someday. Uh, no, I loved being a teacher and I always thought I would be a teacher. I never aspired to even be a principal, much less a superintendent, but you know, I always say too, like life, life presents us with opportunities and, and open doors and, you know, you have to pay attention to those. And I had some opportunities that opened me up to what being a superintendent could be and what I could do for children. And, um, I had some really outstanding role models that showed me what I did my superintendent internship under Dr. Vicki Phillips, who at the time was in Lancaster, uh, County, Pennsylvania. And she's now the, at the uh, national center for education and the economy. But, but, you know, she really modeled for me how as a superintendent, you don't have to, you're not just a figurehead you can actually impact the day-to-day lives of, of, of children and adults working in your schools. And so um, I, I thought, well, let's give it a shot. And uh, here I am, thir- I guess this is my 14th year, 13th year, 14th year as a superintendent. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, Trust me, I so- see it when I look in the mirror. <laughs> right. <laughs> that I'm being a mom. <laughs> um, the one thing I was, I, I heard you say that I hear, <laughs> I hear a lot is that, 
you know, these doors were open for you. And so you walked through and usually there are people holding those doors. And so I, I, I know you just mentioned your mentor superintendent, but I would love to know, you know, one other person who opened a door for you that, that kind of led the way for you. Yeah. I mean, so many, um, I think I would say, uh, Erica Nielsen, Andrew, uh, who, when I was teaching in Marin County in California and was going to leave the classroom and go to another school, she was working for the Bay area school reform collaborative. And she said, you know, I think you'd be a great school coach. And again, I had only seen myself as a teacher. So I was like, well, really? And, um, I did that and I really enjoyed it. And I did it for three years, I think. And then I was just going to go back to the classroom because that's what I wanted to do. But I saw the ad for the Harvard Urban Superintendents Program and the rest is history. But I think she sort of saying, I think you'd be great at this if you considered it, never would have considered it otherwise. But I think the other thing that really opened doors for me was being in the Harvard Harvard Urban Superintendents Program. And the, the co- um, directors of that program, Dr. Linda Wing and Dr. Bob Peterkin, um, really gave me experiences and pushed me um, in ways that I had never been pushed in my learning before and opened me up to a whole world of fabulous leaders who I could, I could learn from and aspire to be. Um, and I think also gave me some of my most powerful points of self-reflection. I remember they would do regular um, they call they were called two on ones because it was the two of them and one of us, and they would give us feedback on our progress and how we were doing in the program. And I remember, and I would always go in like with a list of everything I knew I wasn't doing well. Like I was going to preemptive strike. Like I didn't need to wait for them to tell me what I, I was going to tell them what I was going to was I was not doing well. And I'll never forget one day Bob Peterkin said, "You know, Susan, you're doing fine, you're doing good work, but." Until you overcome your perfectionism issues, you're never going to be the leader that you can be. And, and I'm not making this up. I said, perfectionism issues. What do you mean? Nothing I do is ever good enough. And I'm like, oh, I just heard it. I just <laughs> heard it. And so, and, 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 and it's like, it's a funny anecdote, but there's a lot of truth in that because as leaders, you have to be willing to take risks and taking risks means relinquishing perfectionism issues. Like, you know, you just can't. And, and I'll, I'll give you a great example. I really wanted to do an all staff kickoff here in Washoe County. They'd never done it before. I had no budget to do it. We can't find a venue that works. So we did it at the Reno Livestock and Event Center where they do the Reno Rodeo every year. And, and I knew that, that the scale at which we were doing it, bringing 5,000 people together, never having been done before, shoestring budget, that we would have challenges. Um, and we had lots of challenges, more than I would have liked. It def definitely didn't meet my standard for what I wanted the event to be. But the spirit and why I did it came through to people. So even though the acoustics were bad, even though there were bus issues, and I got plenty of criticism, but for the most part, people were like, thank you for doing that. Like, it was just good to have us, like, we understand why you wanted to do it. It was, it was the right thing to bring us all together. And, and I've used, I've been very public with my staff in using this as a meta moment, right? As a leader, I had to let go and just go for it and know that it wouldn't be. And I've learned a lot and next year it's going to be really good. Um, and so I don't regret doing it, even though it wasn't everything I had wanted it to be. And I think there's power in that. And I always hear Bob in my head saying, don't let those perfectionism tendencies get in the way. <laughs> I love that story. I love that. Like, even with the mirror in front of your face, you were like, what does he mean? Wait a second. That's, that's I hear like it. Now I hear it. 
<laughs> that is so funny. Um, I, I'm sorry. It isn't history for me. I, I went, what do you mean you saw the ad? I, this sounds like a life-changing moment. What, what did you see? Oh yeah, it was. Uh, everyone who knows my story knows this. So I literally was getting ready to go back to the classroom after my coaching and I was reading education week and I'm currently the board chair for education week. So I love the full circle moment of that because I've been an avid reader of education week since I was a, a teacher and I saw an ad for the Harvard urban superintendents program. I was at my dad's and I said, well, this sounds interesting. And my dad said, well, you should, you know, look into it. And I said, well, I don't know if I want to be an urban superintendent. And he said, and this is why I tell people, this is why elders, mentors, parents, whomever are so important. He said, you'd have a doctorate from Harvard. You could do whatever the hell you want. And I'm like, man's got a point, right? And, and so I applied, not knowing what my chances were, right? And, and, I, and I will always be grateful to Erica Nielsen Andrew, because I do think that it was my coaching experience that probably set me apart from some of the other applicants that were maybe coming straight out of a school environment. Um, and so, yeah. And so by some good fortune and luck, I got in and it changed. Not only did it change the course of my professional life, I met my husband in a, at a bar in Faneuil Hall. So. Well, all right. so lots of good advice from parents. And I love also that um, you think it was just your coaching. I'm sure there were a lot of things that set your application apart. And I'm sure that Harvard was just as lucky to have you. But thank you for sharing that. I think people underestimate those tiny moments that might be the direction you're supposed true. to be on. That is so true. that's really neat. Um, let me ask you this. So you switched roles to kind of get, let's say your mojo back. <laughs> um, when you look at the, the future of education, you know that the, the political sphere is about to get a little more intense. What, what brings you like hope? Like, what are you looking at and saying, I know we're going to be okay. And I know we're going to do great things. You know, first of all, I think that those of us who decide to make public education our life's work, get up every day believing the impossible is possible, right? You know, I mean, I just think that that's somehow in the DNA of people um, who, who devote their lives to public education. So I think there's always that sense of there's always hope and possibility, but, but, you know, obviously, honestly, it's, it's in the children, right? I mean, I, I mean, not to like quote Whitney Houston and like, you know, the children are our future, right? I mean, but, but they really are. And I think when I, when I see our young people um, advocate for change, uh, not just in our system, but in our world, um, I, it does give me great hope. Um, our, our kids will save us from ourselves. That's, that's my hope. I think, I think, I, I hope, and I think you might be right. Um, it's funny you say about that thing about educators. So I hosted the CEO of Chiron Learning, who used to work at Google. And he said, the best thing you learn from Google is to disregard the impossible. And so right now I have like a sign in my thing that says disregard the impossible. And it's nice to hear it's, it's an education thing that, you know, it's something is inside of us. It's just, we have it, to it, abs it absolutely is. I mean, and that's my challenge to my team this year. We, in fact, I, I do a symbolic gift for my team every year. And this year it's water bottles with our Washoe County, because this is the year of yes, um, because we need to say yes to, to, to innovation, to possibility. Um, because I think in the pandemic, there was so much instability um, and uncertainty that it was easier to, to sort of retreat inward and say no, right? Because right. it was safer, it was easier. And we need to open up again to, to what's possible. 
That's awesome. I love it. I'm going to put yes somewhere on my bulletin board too. <laughs> All right. We are running low on time. So I'm going to ask you the five questions we ask every guest um, before you go. So the first is we named the podcast more than a test because at Amira, uh, the way the assessments work is that every time a child reads every word is an assessment that can be given back as data to teachers. So instead of three years of or, or three benchmark tests a year, it could be every day learning about their reading. But every guest hears more than a test and thinks of something else. So when you heard more than a test, what did you think of? Um, I thought um, seeing a child for all that they bring, right? Not reducing a child to a label or a test score. Um, that's sort of what, you know, when I say every student by name, strength, and need our, you know, I never want to reduce our kids to a label or a test score. So more than a test means, yeah, we want to measure that our students are growing and learning, but there's so much more to them that we need to get to know. Including chocolate chip cookie recipes. I'm kind of jealous. I wasn't out there. That sounds amazing. Um, and I, it was really good. And I don't (laughs) even like sweets, but it was good. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Well, now I have to say chocolate chip cookies are actually my favorite food and I can tell you like the best across the country. So I'm so curious just how good it was, but it sounds like it was. All right. The next question is, tell us a literary moment in your life. And what we mean is- When you time- come to Reno, we'll take you to AACT. The kids will hook you up. Awesome. I love it. Okay. The next question is, tell me about a literary moment in your life. So a time in your life of you and a book that's either like a happy place or something that like changed your life. Go for it. Yeah. Um, second grade, um, I was obsessed with Judy Bloom's Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. I thought it was the funniest book ever written. I read it all the time. And my second grade teacher, Sister Sheila, knew that I needed a little extra attention given what was going on in my life. And so she let me read installments of the book to the class like once a week. Oh, yeah. Like, this little miss was all about it, right? I get to like have like a captive audience and read my favorite book and crack up. Um, and so I have such fond memories of that book because it just it just made me laugh and and to connect it to a teacher who knew me by name, strength, and need and and harnessed that my the love I had for reading and for that book in particular to to do that. Um, it's probably where the seed for me becoming a teacher was planted, to be honest. Never really reflect on that consciously until now, but yeah. That's a happy, that's a happy literary memory. Judy Bloom has done so much for so many of us. Um, And the funny thing about that book I recently read, she wrote it because she was in a doctor's office and saw the article about a kid swallowing a turtle and (laughs) thought that was so funny. And that's where it comes from. She was in a doctor's office. Oh, fudge. Oh, but, oh, I have a deep, I, I have like three copies of it here. I totally know. I love it. We're kindred spirits, Laura. <laughs> Meant to be. All right. A piece of technology you love. Ooh, piece of technology I love. I know that there's a dark side and downsides to social media. I still believe it has great power to inform and connect and to celebrate when used in the right way. Like I love the fact, like when I was in Highline, I would go to conferences and I would have people tell me, I feel like I know everything happening in Highline because I follow you on social media. I love that we can tell our district story, our kids stories in that way. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's great power in that. I think that's a great answer. Um, the best advice you've ever been given. Hmm. Never say no to a job you haven't been offered yet. <laughs> and I Dang. use this especially with women. Because women will often say, I'm not ready, I'm not qualified. And I'm like, go for it. Go for it. Once they offer it to you, then you can debate whether you want it or not. But give yourself the option. Put yourself in the race. 
That's really, really good advice. And a book you think everyone should read. I always, there's so many good books out there right now. I'm Jonathan Kozal's book, Savage Inequalities, like changed my life as an educator. I, you know, I only knew what I knew from my, you know, really lovely world that I was living in. And, you know, for him to really write about the fact that our public education system was pretty darn segregated, like that was like, what? Segregation's over. You know, I was naive, right? I'm in my early 20s. Um, And that book really changed. I think it planted in me. We didn't talk about social justice right then, back then. This is in the 90s, early 90s. But I think it planted that social justice seed in me that um, that that public education needed to be, you know, something that served every child well. And, you know, the last line in that book where he says, whether they come from East St. Louis or Winnetka, we soil them needlessly. And that line, I mean, it, it, it chokes me up every time because sadly, despite the good work that's happening across our schools, um, we're not doing right by every kid. And that's why we keep showing up every day and trying to do better so that we don't, we don't end up letting them down in that way. It's rare that I have nothing to say at the end, but I am speechless. And so thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.